Welcome back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined today uh, by Peter Suderman and Chris Orr, uh, who is filling in for Alyssa Rosenberg, who is on maternity leave. Peter, Chris, how are you guys today? I'm delighted to be here again. I'm happy to be talking about movies with friends. Uh, first up in controversies and controversies, the arts are in peril. Consider first the new film censorship law passed by Hong Kong City Council at the behest of their Communist Party overlords. Uh, having already passed laws that essentially outlaw dissent and having ordered the removal of a statue commemorating the Tiananmen Square massacre from Hong Kong University, the city's vaunted film industry, which gave birth to greats like Wong Kar Wai and John Woo, is now in the sights of censors. Writing in the New York Times, Austin Ramsey and Tiffany May highlighted how the censorship works. Quote, the director of Far From Home, a short, intimate film about a family caught in the tumult of the 2019 anti-government protests in Hong Kong, had hoped to show off her work at a local film festival in June. Then the censor stepped in. They told the director, Mak Quen Ling, that her film's title, which in Cantonese could carry a suggestion of cleaning up after a crime, must go. Dialogue expressing sympathy for an arrested protester had to be excised. Scenes of removing items from a room also had to be cut, apparently because they might be construed as concealing evidence. In total, Miss Mock was f- f- uh, ordered to make 14 cuts from the 25-minute film. That's 14 cuts in 25 minutes. But she said that doing so would have destroyed the balance she had attempted to forge between the views of protesters and those who opposed them. So she refused, and her film has thus far gone unseen by the public. End quote. Uh, Hong Kong isn't the only place where anti-art sent- sentiment is resurgent. Uh, th- the return of the Taliban in Afghanistan has also led to that nation's burgeoning film industry uh, to suffer mightily as Kabul fell. Deadline reported about how the film industry there had been, quote, obliterated, end quote. Uh, and a famed comedian in the nation, Nazar Mohammad Kasha, was also killed by the tel- Taliban, joking all the way to his execution, a real king move. Um, uh, this is all incredibly troubling and a terrible reminder uh, that those of us with freedom in the rest in the West have an obligation to render aid to those without it in the rest of the world. Uh, Chris, surely this means it's time to renew the neocon project and spread <laughs> freedom around the globe. Am I right? Uh, yeah, I think military intervention is really the uh, the only yes. option at this point. Finally. Um, I mean, it is. It's tremendously <laughs> depressing. And, you know, and it's a continuation of something we've been seeing from China, you know, for for years, really, even 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 decades. Um, you know, prominent Chinese filmmakers have been punished and have had to, I'm thinking the case of uh, Zhang Yimou um, made that movie Hero, which was basically an apology for all his previous movies, because the theme of Hero was that uh, the emperor of China should be able to sub- subjugate the entire world and people should uh, should essentially commit suicide rather than stand in his way. Um, so, I mean, it's, you know, it's the latest step in a long string of, of sort of disturbing developments in China. And obviously what is also disturbing is that, uh, you know, large American corporations want entry to the Chinese market. And um, as we have seen time and time again, they are not exerting any meaningful moral force at all um, against this kind of censorship and, and political control. Yeah, Peter, I mean, that, that is kind of the question here. What What is to be done? Uh, obvious, I'm being tongue in cheek when I say uh, it's time to invade Hong Kong to save the, the movie studios. But I, uh, there there are levers of power that can still be pulled from American shores. They just happen to be controlled by American corporations that want no part of doing battle with the Chinese government. I think that's right to some extent, um, though, you know, look, at, at some point, 
those corporations are going to have to make decisions about where they want to uh, where they want their market to be. And these are going to be market-driven decisions ultimately, right? And I, at the same time they're also going to be political decisions because at some point Disney's going to be tired of uh, of China saying, wait, actually, we're not going to open your movie here or we're not going to open your movie until it's been out in the rest of the world for a month, which basically means it's not going to open meaningfully because the piracy market in China is so developed. And so to some extent, this stuff will be solved just when uh, or, or I won't say solved. This stuff will develop further and companies will make further decisions at the point that this becomes a problem for them in their bottom lines. And I think that point is actually coming pretty soon. And so just so I, you know, uh, no. So Chris is giving me like a, a little bit of a strange look here. And if you just think about how much of Disney's Marvel strategy has been built around selling to the Chinese market and how this year, uh, even with films like Shang-Chi and the Ten, Legend of the Ten Rings, China has not stepped up and said, oh, let's sure you're going to open. They have been they have slow walked these films into the Chinese market. And what they basically said is we are no longer a reliable business partner. And that's because that's what they were. They were the Chinese government, um, for better and for worse, in many cases for worse, was a business partner for a lot of the big uh, the big American studios. And so so as China continues to do this, it is going to become a tougher and tougher just to maintain the Chinese government as a business partner. partner. And also, you know, the, this is going to happen in the context of the Chinese government promoting Chinese films at the expense of American films. And so at some point, American studios are not going to step up and, and make a great moral decision because they believe, like have a deep abiding belief in freedom. What they're going to do is they're going to say, we're not going to stand up for this anymore because I should say, they're going to say they have a deep abiding belief in American freedom. That's what they're going to say. But you know what? They're going to do this at the point that Chinese becomes such a bad business partner that it no longer makes sense to work with them. And China is quickly moving in that direction. And so I, I think that we don't have to wait. You know, we, we don't need like a, a massive foreign policy scheme that developed by Josh Hawley and Chuck Schumer. What we need is for, I mean, what, or what's going to happen, I should say, is that the Chinese government is eventually going to push these people out because ultimately the Chinese government, I think, doesn't want to be a business in business with Hollywood. They want to be in business with big Chinese movie studios that they control directly rather than indirectly. Yeah, yeah, that's that's definitely true. But there's there is a broader point here about the uh, the very weak nature of the film industry's ability to protect against this sort of stuff happening on a governmental level um, uh, regardless. So, I mean, one, well, one thing that think, I worry just about. Just think back a little bit to the, the the United States film industry and its adoption of the Hayes Code, which was they basically said we're going to put up with uh, intervention into our content by the by the government. It's okay. Hayes code, sure, it Hayes code was all private. Yes, technically, it was all private, but it was it was an attempt to head off all of that stuff yeah. to do to do it themselves because they didn't want to irritate uh, the U.S. Senate, right? And so again, yes, technically it was all private. Technically, there was no actual sort of federal lever that was pulled, but the pressure was applied, and the, Hollywood rolled over because Hollywood rolls over. They don't want political problems. They occasionally want to make speeches, you know, when they at the Oscars. It was also 65 to 70 years ago. I mean, this is this is the thing. So talking about the Hayes Code, A, it was private, but also B, it was a very long time ago. And C, uh, the the system that is in place right now is essentially the envy of the world. I mean, I like the there's this there's this I've mentioned this before, I think, on the show. There's this great interview David Gronenberg uh, gave when he was promoting something or other in the 1980s. And it's on the it's on the 
um, Videodrome disc if anybody wants to, to wants to watch it. But he's talking about how in Canada, when you submit a film for rating and review, there's an actual censor board. And if you show the thing that they tell you to take out, you could go to prison. Like that is a thing that I, I, my understanding still exists. It certainly existed in the 1980s. Um, uh, so I don't know about a, prison, but it's definitely the case that the UK, uh, Canada, and Australia just have much, yep. much. Um, they don't have free speech protections in the way that we that we do at all. Setting all that aside, the thing I worry about, uh, Chris, is what is going to happen to the legacy titles, the library titles. I mean, they're, they're, these are movies that. Uh, you know, you can you you. There are movies that have been made in Hong Kong that are uh, going to run afoul of Chinese uh, sensibilities in one way or another, either because they talk about an independent Hong Kong, or they talk about the corruption on, in mainland China, or they you know whatever. They there there are any number of reasons. Uh, they talk about Tiananmen Square, whatever. Um, those movies are first of all, not going to be shown anymore, but there's a very real chance that they could just disappear entirely. Um, is there, what, what, what can we do? What, what can be done to kind of airlift those out <laughs> for lack of a better word and bring them, bring them here to, there needs to be, I guess, I guess I'm rambling now. I'm rambling because I'm so worried about this, but there needs to be some sort of like repository of artistic knowledge that is out of the reach of the, the censor's hands. Like the foundation. Well, going back to, to Zhang Yimou, whom I mentioned earlier, um, I mean, I think the kinds of movies you're talking about are movies like his early movies, Judo and Race, Race uh, the Red Lantern, which were very unpopular with the Chinese government and got him in a bunch of trouble. And then he made Hero to sort of make up with the government and was rewarded with getting to be, uh, you know, the, the, the maestro of the, uh, of the 2008 Olympics. Um, so, uh, I mean, I think one thing, you know, Westerners can do is if you have these movies on DVD, keep them on DVD. Don't assume that you'll be able to stream them two years from now or 10 years from now or 15 years from now, because you might not. They might just vanish. But if you have the DVD in your house, you know, the Chinese government is not going to come to your house and take the DVD away. At least that seems not highly unlikely yet. to me. Not um, yet. But I mean, not but until a, the Red Dawn style assault. <laughs> Right, exactly. On, on America's home video libraries. <laughs> Raise high the red dawn lantern. <laughs> um, but I mean, but the but the truth is, I think you you know you've isolated something really important. I mean, there's a finite amount that 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 people can do, and I think there is a real danger that some of these titles you know could vanish, especially the ones that are not so well known that don't you know have a real constituency that haven't sold you know thousands or tens of thousands of DVDs in the West. Yeah. So I can I push back on that just a tiny bit. I do think that this is a, a it's a danger that these things could go out of circulation in conventional formats and easy to access formats. At the same time, what have we seen on the internet over the last 20 years is that actually if if there is something that is rare that was that only 150 copies existed on like Betamax in 1983, somebody will post that to YouTube. And then maybe there'll be a takedown order and it'll come, da come down and then it will go up. It'll go back on YouTube again in another couple of months. And then what happens after that is if at, at the point that YouTube develops an algorithm that's so good that it takes it down entirely, it ends up on BitTorrent. 
and you can just torrent it. And like, sure, it's kind of maybe not technically fully legal. And there's always sorts of complications. And I don't want to say that it is well preserved. At the same time, the Internet has enabled uh, preservation efforts of extremely rare stuff, in particular video and audio um, that like that are just actually quite difficult to fully stamp out. I, I don't want to say that it's a great situation when the only way you can get something is somebody's badly mastered like home, you know, uploaded BitTorrent version of something. That's that's not the ideal world. At the same time, those kinds of distributed technologies are really difficult for even quite powerful governments to fully uh, stamp out. And so we actually do see basically crowd efforts to uh, to keep these things alive and to keep them around and make them ex- accessible to people who don't say have a copy on DVD or on VHS, you know, stuffed away in a closet somewhere. Well, I mean, you're you're right about that, but again, but the 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 barriers to entry are high enough that it you know if if it requires that much effort, very few people are going to do it. So you may be right that that. But it only takes one always... person to upload it, and then a couple of people just to keep the torrent alive. I'm just saying that if you're an average movie watcher, or even yeah. a, a, a you know a semi fanatical movie watcher, and you see I don't know uh, House of Flying Daggers, and think oh I want to go see Zhang Yimou's earlier movies, and you can't immediately find um, Raise the Red Lantern or Juju, you know it's unlikely that you are going to you know get online and find an illegal bit torrent, torrent to download. Um, some and, people will do it, but the vast majority of people will just be like oh well that's too bad I can't watch that movie. And I like to imagine Martin Scorsese sitting there weeping as he hears us talking about 480p, you know, rips (laughs) of six-generation bootleg DVDs serving as the only remaining extant, you know, copies of of these things. There is something to be said for— That's the best way to watch Dune, by the way. (laughs) In portrait mode on your iPad color, you know. Uh, all right. Uh, so what do we think? Is it a controversy or a non-troversy that authoritarian regimes around the world are snuffing out the arts as America stands idly by? Chris? Definitely a controversy. Peter, when I put it that way. Controversy. Yeah, it's controversy. Screw you, China. <laughs> Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, and who doesn't, it's great, except for the Chinese censors listening to this. Too bad. I don't care if you don't like it. Uh, please head over to atma.thebulwark.com where we'll have a special bonus episode on the wild and weird world of Wes Anderson. Speaking of whom, on to the main event, The French Dispatch. Wes Anderson's latest movie is an anthology of short stories designed to resemble an issue of The New Yorker magazine. Uh, the spine of the anthology is the life and death of Arthur Howitzer Jr., played by Bill Murray, who founded the periodical based in Ennui, France, while on vacation, uh, and turned it into a lifelong enterprise. Uh, again, the film kind of resembles a New Yorker magazine in its structure. The opening segment is an in-brief look at life on the town of Ennui, written by Herb St. Sazerac, played by Owen Wilson. Uh, the first short is The Concrete Masterpiece, A Consideration of the Business of Art, by J.K.L. Berenson, played by Tilda Swinton. And the middle story is a, a look at politics and the aesthetics of revolution by Lucinda Kremens, played by Francis McDormand. And the final story is told by Jeffrey Wright's Roebuck Wright, uh, the private dining room of the police commissioner. It's one of those classic New Yorker stories. It begins as one thing and turns into something else. Uh, In this case, it's a profile of a chef who cooks for the police that turns into a chase for a kidnapped kid. Um, This is a true ensemble film. In addition to the aforementioned actors, uh, we have Benicio Del Toro, Adrian Brody, Leah Sadu, Timothy Chalamet, Stephen Park, Bob Balaban, Henry Winkler, Christoph Waltz, Matthew Elmerich, uh, Liev Schreiber, Edward Norton, Willem Dafoe, Schwarzy Warnin, and a whole host of others. Uh, And as such, it makes the film 
uh, I will put it this way, unprofitable to discuss audibly uh, via podcast, <laughs> uh, just in terms of plot and whatnot. Um, instead, I just want to focus here on the way in which Anderson treats the arts and artists. There's a, there's a line in the film about how Howitzer treated everyone with a sort of brusqueness, except for his writers, whom he extended near infinite patience. It's very funny watching Murray interact with them. Um, he's almost pained. He's resigned. He's not tyrannical with them. He's questioning his suggestions when he has them are good, um, but they're very rarely commands. He's mostly worried about expenses, writers being prone to take advantage of their expense accounts. Not that we would know anything about that. Uh, writers and editors all in this room. Um, but all of these segments are in their own way about the arts. They're about the arts, uh, most explicitly in the concrete masterpiece, which is about an artist in prison who becomes a sensation, but also in revisions to a manifesto, which is about the ways in which art and propaganda collide uh, and how most protest movements are little more than exercises in aesthetic attachment. Uh, or the private dining room of the police commissioner, the split screens of which during this movie make it very clear that fine dining is about as fussy as any Wes Anderson movie. Um, the French Dispatch is, uh, I think, one of the finest appreciations of art qua art uh, I've seen in some time. Peter, uh, which of these segments was your favorite? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I, I guess I have to go with the last one because I think... Sorry. Um, because I because I just... I, I, I loved listening to Jeffrey Wright's voice. And I could just listen to Jeff, Jeffrey Wright's voice forever. Um, and it's like it's it's strange how in how uh, I don't know how how affecting I found that performance just because even though there's not much to it right most of it is him sitting in the interview room with Liv Schreiber right he's just sort of he crosses his legs a few times and kind of shifts himself occasionally he sort of walks through the scenes of the you know that that make up the story but mostly he's just narrating and yet to me this is one of the finest supporting performances for you know by a, a male actor of the year it's there's just something sort of strangely uh, uh, humane about it that I can't quite put my finger on. And I, that's sort of um, that's that's kind of how I feel about this whole movie is just there's a there's a depth of humanity to this that I think some of Wes Anderson's critics, people who you know have found his work just sort of fussy and, you know, over twee for its own sake without actually having anything to say, are really missing um are missing a lot, especially in his later work, and in particular in this film, about he's actually trying to, he is, there's a clear theme here, and there's a clear set of ideas that he is trying to sort of, it's not like there's a thesis, but there's a set of ideas that he is trying to work through. Um, and I think, you know, the thing that, that jumped out to me most about this film, sort of structurally, uh, you know, and thematically, is it's not just that all of these stories take place in ennui, right? The fictional, uh, the fictional town in France. It's also that the the paper that this uh, that the French Dispatch is a supplement of is from Liberty, Kansas, right? Liberty, and so this is like the state that that this movie is stuck in. It is a it is a movie about about being suspended between ennui, right? That sort of state of like boredom and not being certain, you know, about your life and what you're going to do and sort of not having any place to go or anything that you think and liberty, right? And that it is entirely about the tension between liberty and ennui. And it's just a fascinating little mood piece, you know, uh, filled with all of these Wes Andersonisms uh, that I just found incredibly charming and, and, and incredibly wonderful. I think this is probably my second favorite film uh, by him after, um, after the Royal Tenenbaums. And I think it's, I, I think it's his best work in years uh, and one of the best movies I've seen this year. 
Uh, Chris, I, I, I'm glad that Peter brought up the, the fact that this is based, uh, you know, the fictionally it is based on a, a supplement of a newspaper that is in Kansas, right? What is, what is, what do you think Wes Anderson is getting at here? I mean, there, you could make the argument that he's like, oh, this is, this is what the rubes are doing, right? But I don't think that's, I don't think that's what's going on here. That's, that strikes me as deeply unfair. What is, what is the point of, of kind of having this movie, uh, take place between Kansas and, and Paris? Or ennui, France. That's an excellent question, Sonny. And uh, I do think part of it is he's just going for a certain sort of post-war vibe of the expatriate American. Uh, and I can't remember the name of the supplement before it became the French Dispatch. What was it? It was called something like – it was like a, a vacation supplement. Oh, it was, it was yeah, something – it had no literary aspirations at all until Arthur Howitzer came along and gave it literary aspirations. So um, I don't know. I mean, it's actually a great question why he uh, why he sets the the newspaper itself in Kansas. But I think it is because he wants he, he wants a, an explicitly American perspective on France. Um, I mean, again, the magazine that he is he is quite uh, self-consciously um, mimicking here is The New Yorker. Um, but I think he wanted that sort of continental vibe of Americans abroad, especially because he sort of set the movie in, in the period when that was a great sort of romantic ideal. Yeah. Um, so I actually I, think, I, 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 I would just say that I, I think it's because he is making an argument that this stuff should be accessible, this sort of, like, his his movies, but also uh, aspirational sort of literary um, kinds of uh, art, right, should be accessible to middle Americans. And that, in fact, all the people who, like, there is a, he's he is arguing, you know, in some sense, against people who think that, oh, this stuff is not accessible to normies. And I, I think, like, yeah. it's, it's very democratic and, like, um, and again, it's deeply humane, but also it's like, no, look, these people, actually people in Kansas can and should have access to this wonderful world of, like, high art and culture. It is worth it is worth reminding folks that Wes Anderson is from Houston, Texas. Yeah. Um, that's his oh, first uh, his first his first couple of films uh, take place in Texas. I'm sorry, Chris. We don't mean to interrupt. What is what was your favorite segment of uh, of of the film? What, it, what what did you what did you take away from it? Uh, like Peter, I actually I thought the fourth was was the best, um, and I didn't think it was particularly close. Um, I may have liked the movie a little less than the two of you did. Um, I, I found it overall quite delightful, but a little bit slight. Um, and the first three stories in particular, none of them really grabbed me that much. And I, and I am a Wes Anderson guy. Um, but the fourth one was an absolute delight. I'm not sure I've ever – I was trying to think if I'd ever heard uh, Jeffrey Wright do comedy before. And I couldn't think of an instance of it. But he's lovely in it. Um, he's wonderful. And, and I would add, even though it's a tiny, tiny role, one of, you know, dozens of tiny roles by famous actors, um, Jude Law's interviewer, sort of a, a Dick cavity style sort of semi-intellectual interviewer i thought he just captured Lee schreiber that's 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 Lee schreiber well i'm sorry what did i say that role yeah you said jude law oh gosh i'm sorry no of course uh Lee schreiber you're thinking of uh thinking grand, grand budapest, budapest hotel. hotel i am actually. yes yeah yeah um anyway i thought i thought he was lovely in uh in you know a very limited performance but a very clever performance um and i would i would echo something that peter said and 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 this is probably in part why I'm reminded of the Grand Budapest Hotel. Um, what I liked about the private dining room of the police commissioner is it is simultaneously an antic kidnapping chase. Bullets are flying. Bombs are going off. It's this sort of, you know, there's a car chase with a kid strapped on the, the hood of a 
car trying not to fall off. Um, but it is, it is at the same time a story about about art, about about creating the finest meal that can be that can be made. And I was reminded of the Grand Budapest Hotel in that, which which is my favorite of uh, of Wes Anderson's films, narrowly edging out um, Rushmore. Uh, but what, one of the things that is so striking about Grand Budapest Hotel is that even though it is one of his busiest, wackiest films, it has this undercurrent of tragedy that runs throughout the entire film and becomes most evident at the very end of the film. Um, and, and this felt a little similar. It's a, it was a story that seems to be about one thing, which is the kidnapping of a small child and the police trying to rescue that child, um, but is really about something else. And the thing that it's about is cooking the perfect meal. Yeah. I want to I want to talk to you guys a little bit well, about this the movie. The perfect as... meal becomes a vehicle for someone's freedom, exactly. right? Well, and this it, is a movie about how art is freedom and the two are synonymous and you sort of can't and like that's what that it's not just that we are that freedom gives us art, it's that art also delivers freedom to us. It, I mean, in that way it's a little bit like Pig, which I know you all talked about earlier this yeah. year. Yeah. Yeah. Um I want to talk about this movie as from the perspective of people who have worked at magazines. Uh, right. Because I I, I, I want to make this about me uh, and my experiences. That's how I interact with art. Uh, but no, I mean, I think there's like there there's something very, very real about the uh, about Bill Murray's frustrated editor who is constantly sniping at the art uh, guys and the layout guys and the copy editors uh, and the printing press. But he he is almost deferential to the writers. He goes to the writers. He's like, look, come on, guys, I really need this. Please, I need my I need my stuff so I can put out this this magazine. It it struck me as the absolute right mixture of tones. Uh, I don't I don't know what your guys' experiences have been like uh, in the the world of big magazine editing, but I would be I'd be curious what your take was. Just as a just as a person who has kind of worked in this industry for for a long time, uh, Peter, let's start with you. I just think it's the best movie I've ever seen about editorial planning meetings. <laughs> I really like I've sat through many of those and had those discussions. And obviously, this is not a, a perfectly realistic depiction of them because this movie is not a perfectly realistic depiction of anything. It's not interested in that kind of, you know, like a spotlight level of, you know, sort of just kind of normie realism. But what it is, is it's it gets at some of the distilled essence of like the strangeness of those meetings, uh, right? The the quirkiness of all the characters in the room, the the way they can be sort of fascinatingly dominated in some cases by by a weird writer, but in other cases by like a, an imposing editor who just sort of like is a, you know a, a little dictator of seventy two pages each month, and I don't know that most people will appreciate that aspect of the movie because it doesn't take pains to emphasize that it that it's doing that it just uses those sequences to kind of as um as bookends for each of the stories yeah but it, those sequences really really work and they show a i think a deep appreciation for the craft of specifically magazine journalism which is very different than newspaper journalism or online daily journalism yeah, Chris, you you were previously of uh, the Atlantic and the New Republic, uh, obviously two of our August literary journals. Um, what what was your what was your take on watching all that play out uh, on the screen? I, there's there's no question that this is a movie. I think that anyone would enjoy more if they spent time uh, working <laughs> at magazines that had you know some level of literary aspiration, whether or not it was it was ever achieved. Um, 
I, I mean, I quite agree with Peter. There are moments in it that are just lovely, that are just, that you just have this, this, this recognition. There, there's one moment uh, late in the film, and I won't get into details about it, but there's one moment where uh, Bill Murray, again, who plays the, the editor of the magazine, uh, asks one of his writers, is this all the reporting you've got? Did you get anything else? And the writer's like, well, here's some of my other pages here, my other notes. And Bill Murray's like flipping through and he's like, this? Why isn't this in the story? This is the this best is the thing story. You have. <laughs> yeah. And I have literally, literally done exactly that. You know, not often, but I don't know, three times, four times over 25, 30 years. Yeah. Um, and, and they're just a, they're a handful of little moments like that. That was the one that really, really, really caught me. I mean, I just, it was a moment of yeah. just pure recognition. Um, but, but it gets a lot of those little details right. And again, I think. Unfortunately, a lot of those little details will be wasted on many viewers because he does not make a big deal about them. He does not try to explain them. This is not a, a movie that's trying to, you know, introduce people to how journalism is done. Yeah. Um, but for those of us who have, you know, intersected with with certain types of similar journalism, it's it's extremely, extremely enjoyable. I, let's let's I want to talk a little bit just about the uh, one critique that I have seen leveled at this film is that it is fussy to the point of simply being about the fussiness, that it is a a creature of its own habits and its own quirks. And I, I want to push back on that, but I'll let, I'll let you guys uh, wrestle with that first. Uh, Peter, you were violently shaking your head. Yeah, so, violently so shaking like I said, head. I think this is a movie about how about art and freedom and about how the two are just inherently interlinked. It's not a movie that just has nothing to say except here are some interesting, funny pictures and uh, actors doing it you know, funny accents and wearing goofy costumes and I've posed them all well. Although it is in some sense, it's also a movie about that. Uh, but I think that to go back to, I th we should actually talk about the, um, the first, uh, the first of the features, the concrete, the concrete masterpiece, masterpiece. Uh, here, as well as uh, the private dining room uh, that we've already talked about. And both of these are movies, excuse me, both of these are stories about, about how art justifies itself because it is good because it is aesthetically wonderful. And it may do other things. It may provide a person with a kind of freedom, right? In, this, in the case of a prisoner who is making art inside a jail, right? And he becomes, he finds a measure of himself in making that art and becomes who he is. And so it is valuable to him, even if it can't ever be valuable to anyone else, which is a point that the movie underscores in some really funny and clever ways. Um, and then at the end, right? The meal is, that, that perfect meal is valuable on its own because it's a perfect meal because it has been because somebody has has worked over it you know has has made these decisions and figured out how to make that that wonderful meal but then it becomes valuable in that it actually also does something else which is that it is the key to freeing the you know somebody who has been taken hostage um, and so this is in some sense Wes Anderson I think justifying his own work. And it's a little bit like how Quentin Tarantino has spent the last couple of uh, the last decade or so making movies about how cinematic violence is actually incredibly moral after several years of being accused by literally by Congress of making movies that are immorally hyper violent. And so but Wes Anderson is is responding to critics here, I think, by saying, first of all, my beautiful thing justifies itself. It doesn't need to do anything else. But also beautiful things provide us with a life that is worth living. Chris. Uh, I would agree with that. I would also say, uh, you know, there's, there's, the film is a love letter. The film is a love letter, not just to the New Yorker, 
but to the New Yorker of a certain era, to the New Yorker of of uh, William Shawn and Harold Ross, um, to you know the New Yorker that would run two hundred thousand word series on wheat, um, <laughs> to a to a certain sort of moment in American journalism, and a certain again a certain type of American journalism. I, I mean, I do think that the whole sort of romantic ideal of the the expatriate American writer, especially living in France, um, is just, is, you know, is something we're all familiar with. Um, and I think that love just comes through in, in you know, in all four of the stories. Um, and I think I uh, agree with Peter if, if he was suggesting that the concrete masterpiece is the second best of the four. I agree with that as well. Um, but I mean, I, I, whatever, I, I find it frustrating that people continue to to say this about Wes Anderson. Um, I think there have been moments where it might be a valid critique. Uh, the, the Darjeeling Express, which I think was was a low point for him. Um, Moonrise Kingdom. Uh, oh, Moonrise Kingdom was where the oh, it was Moonrise where the, is where the actual. It's a literal dollhouse. With I mean, he takes us right up through it at the beginning shot. Moonrise I, I can't Kingdom stand is that movie. a literal love story. It is oh. a beautiful film. Darjeeling limited it so much better. You are so much better than mind. that. In any case. Uh, you know, whatever. Is it true that that Wes Anderson is twee and does like you know hyper stylized you know frames and constructions? Of course, it's true. But is it true that that is all he does? Of course not. That's just it's a ridiculous critique. Yeah, I would argue. I mean, I would argue that this whole thing uh, is essentially him saying, "I am this way for a reason," uh, and you you a have to indulge me, but b I'm also going to give you stuff you love. Um, and see, it's all done in conjunction with people. I and mean, this is what we haven't really talked about: uh, the the middle feature, uh, the, the 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 revised manifesto, or the manifesto's revision. revisions what, what, to a manifesto. Revisions to a manifesto. Thank you. Uh, the one with Timothy uh, Chalamet. With, with Timothy Chalamet, who is uh, we'll, we'll talk maybe a little more about him in the next episode. Um, but what what what's interesting about that one is that it is about the ways in which collaboration happen and people who are useful collaborators and people who are not useful collaborators, uh, in addition to being, again, about kind of the the nature of propaganda as art and art uh, in, in a certain way as propaganda, um, which I think is all I think is all very interesting. It's not like Wes Anderson is making these things on his own. He's doing it in collaboration with, in this case, I mean, hundreds of people, thousands of people. Who knows, who knows how many people worked on this? But I mean, the cast alone, the speaking roles alone number – um, uh, almost, almost in the uh, the high double digits, maybe low. High, high double digits of, of Oscar nominees, I think. Yeah, I mean it's crazy. I like this cast is 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 nuts. Yeah, I mean it's the Black uh, Hawk Down of twenty twenty one. Well, no, because all these people, the, all these people are already stars. Is the thing. It's like it's not. It would it would have to be slightly different for that. All right. Uh, was there anything else you guys wanted to say about uh, the French Dispatch? I loved it. I I am uh, I'm, I'm very I'm glad that you guys liked it as well. Seemingly, it's a good movie. It's a good movie. Yeah, I, like I, I had a ball. I don't want anyone to think that I didn't have a ball. I really enjoyed it. Um, but but it was for me, I think, sort of minor Wes Anderson as opposed to major Wes Anderson. There you go. So I, I, yeah, I I I think it. Like I said, I think it's one of his uh, two or three best films. Um, and just to go back briefly to the idea of of how art justifies itself and you know creates revelation. Think about in the concrete masterpiece. It's almost entirely in black and white, except for these brief moments when it shifts to color. And it's always when somebody sees something transcendent in art, right? The 
it is a it is a very very obvious stylistic clue to what both that story and the entire movie is about uh that i i feel like people haven't sort of picked up on this quite you know quite as much as it, as they should but it's really obvious what what he's doing with those color shifts it's that suddenly for a moment art has come into someone's life and enlivened it and made it and burst into color right it has it has become more real and and more vivid uh, their lives have become more real and more vivid uh and i feel like that's this movie is that to me, like it made my life uh, a, a little more wonderful and a little more in color for a little while. I'm excited to get this on 4K so I can go frame by frame and look at all of the very precise compositions. Uh, so what do we think? Uh, thumbs up or thumbs down on the French Dispatch? Chris? Thumbs up. Peter? Big thumbs up. Thumbs up. Good movie. Three thumbs up. Uh, all right, that is it for today's show. Uh, if you loved it, make sure to check out our members on the bonus episode on Wes Anderson and his crazy cast of actors uh make sure to tell your friends a strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences if we do not grow we will die if you did not love today's episode please complain to me on twitter at sunny bunch i'll convince you that this is in fact the best show in your podcast feed see you guys next week 